This morning, uh, we're going to be considering Isaiah chapter 5. So you have your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah chapter 5. I'm just going to read the first seven verses. We're, we are going to look at the entire chapter. I'm just going to read seven verses. Take a break and pray. This is a very famous section in the book, uh, the Song of the Vineyard. And so I will attempt not to be distracted. I'll attempt to come in on time with the right tempo. This is the Word of God. I will sing for the one I love. A song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Before we uh, consider this passage together, let's pray. Lord, uh, we would ask by your spirit uh, this morning that you would uh, guide us in your word. Help us to uh, walk in it uh, with knowledge and with uh, purity and also a desire to know you better and a desire to uh, be more like you. I pray that by your spirit you will cultivate uh, the fruit in our lives that you desire to see. I pray that you will uh, prune us. I pray that you will uh, remove from us all that which is impure all that which is displeasing to you, help us to reflect you well. Help us to be a people that, when you, when you look into our lives individually and also corporately as uh, the church, I pray that you will be pleased with what you see. Make us in the image of Christ. Help us to be like him. Father, for those who uh, wish that they could be here, but because of sickness or other reasons are not able to, uh, I pray that you will be with them, you know, wherever they are, that your hand will be upon them, that you will keep them safe, and that you will draw them ever closer to yourself. Give us wisdom. Give the teachers who are with the, the children and those who are working in the nursery, give them the grace and the patience and the wisdom that they need uh, for their tasks. We so often uh, take what they do for granted Sunday by Sunday, and yet uh, we would so very quickly learn uh, how much they do if they were not there. So we thank you for them, give them all that they need, and equip us as well this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so, so far in Isaiah, first four chapters, and we'll see this even more prominently in the sixth chapter, uh, one of the things that's very apparent is that God is high and exalted, he's holy, he's lifted up. But here, Isaiah starts out by identifying him also as the one that I love. And this is, of course, the, the, the right way of approaching God. He is high and exalted. Uh, he is high and lifted up. He is incredible. He is transcendent. He's righteous and holy. But we're also to love him. We are, the first commandment is to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and we're not just commanded to do that as if somehow you need to sort of screw up the force of your will and, and feel benevolent things towards God. It's more a recognition of who he is and in seeing him clearly as he works to remove sort of the, the, the blinding uh, cataracts of sin. Uh, as you see him clearly, you can't help but love him. And, and so we, we come to Isaiah, and Isaiah is often talking about the holiness of God, the, the exalted nature of God. And that's a necessary corrective for us today in our society. We need to see how holy and exalted God is. But we also need to see his beauty. That he, he's worthy of love. He ought to be loved. There's nothing better than for us to love him. And so Isaiah says, I will sing for the one I love. A song about his vineyard. And then he describes how you know, this vineyard is planted in a fertile hillside. Good soil. And in this part of the world, uh, good soil is at a premium. It's rare. And this person does absolutely everything they can possibly do to take care of this piece of property. This is like, you know, if, if you could, you know, down in Kentucky, if you could hire Wendell Berry to take care of an acre or ten acres of property, this type of loving care and attention he would give is the sort of thing you have described here. This is a, a perfect vineyard owner, loves the property, loves the soil, loves the cultivation. In fact, he does something which is pretty remarkable. I'm not sure how many farms you've visited lately. might do your heart good to go see one at some point. But there aren't a lot of farms that have watchtowers built in the middle of them. So you can go up and look around and see what's going on. I mean, when's the last time you, you drove through you know, farm country and you saw a vast field of corn with a watchtower in the middle? You know, with, with the farmer just standing up in the watchtower, just looking out, loving the crops, making sure everything's fine. This is a little bit above and beyond the call of duty for most people. It's intensive labor enough, let alone to labor even harder to build yourself a watchtower so you can go up and just watch things taking place. Make sure there's no fires, there's no intruders, there's no vermin, there's nothing. You're just enjoying, almost literally, you know, watching the crops grow. This is a person who loves this farm. He does everything he can with skill and with love, with know-how and with care. And then the time comes for the harvest. This person goes and they want to see the type of harvest that they have. And obviously they have not been lazy. They have worked hard. They have not said, well, you know, you know there, there's, a, there's an apple tree over there or a pear tree. I'll just go and sit and wait for the fruit to fall into my lap. He's gone out and worked as hard as he possibly can and now patiently has waited for the harvest and now the harvest time is here. 
So he goes out fully expecting that with the quality of the soil and the work that he's done, there will be an excellent harvest. His anticipation is that there will be good fruit, and there ought to be. But then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, what can you do? So he says, judge between me and my vineyard. Now, the people there, and this actually is going to become very important later. So hold on to this detail. It's important in the immediate context. It will become even more important in the context. We'll see in just a little bit. The people, in condemning the vineyard, condemn themselves. They recognize if someone has poured all of their work into this and it's not yielding anything, then it's a hopeless case. Nothing else could possibly be done for this vineyard and it's still producing bad, a bad harvest. You just need to tear it down and start again. And so the wall's broken down, everything's destroyed, it's trampled, it's a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, thorns grow up, thorns, of course, is a sign of the curse. This is now cursed ground. It was deeply loved, and now it's cursed. And you begin to see here, obviously the identity of this uh, vineyard worker and owner isn't just like anyone else, because he also says, I will command the clouds not to rain on it at the end of verse 6. This isn't just a regular farmer. This is obviously a metaphor for God. God is the one who commands the rain. And there is not going to be a harvest if God says, I'm not sending rain anymore. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And then the punchline, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty, verse 7, is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted. He, he looked at Israel and Judah after all he had done for them taking them out of slavery in Egypt, giving them the law, manifesting his holy nature, giving them the kingdom, giving them the temple, giving them peace and wisdom, and the, and the societies continue to split and splinter. And, and we've seen, actually, in chapters 2 through 4 last week, some of the societal disintegration that was taking place. I said, I love this people. But when I looked, and I just looked for, for something common like justice, I just wanted to see that things were right. It wasn't there. I looked for justice, but there was bloodshed. I looked for righteousness, and righteousness here is in sinless perfection. Righteousness is just being on the right side of a standard. It's basically saying the same thing as justice. I just want to see that things were okay. And, and I'm looking to make sure that things are okay, and all I'm hearing are cries of distress, which means that they're not. So God looks at his people fully expecting after all the work that he's done. There ought to be a harvest of righteousness. And all there is is bloodshed, disintegration, and ruin. And the people themselves have pronounced their own sentence. There's nothing you can do but tear it down and start again. In verses 8 through 23, God then gives a description of the bad fruit. And this is organized in a six-fold pattern of woe. Okay. And woe doesn't just mean sort of uh, a lamentation. Woe is not just mourning or crying. Woe is, like, this is bad for you. This is dangerous. It's lamentable, and you're in jeopardy. Judgment is coming. So the first one is this, verse 8. What's the bad for working out the metaphor? Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. So the first woe is, frankly, pronounced on the greedy. 
those who are just buying up property, those who are increasing their own riches, those who are have, owning multiple fields, multiple homes, you know, they said they go out into the land, they buy up different properties, they, they knock down other homes, they can build their massive home in the middle, they're joining field to field, and there's no room left for anyone else. They completely disregard the basic needs of other people. As long as they can get more and more for themselves, they literally don't care at all. They'll drive people out. Now, one of the reasons this is so bad is not just that it's selfish, not just that it shows a disregard for the poor, but culturally, contextually, remember that when God brought the people out of slavery, he brought them into the promised land, and he insisted to them, listen, you don't own the land, the land's mine. I'm letting you live here. And so do not deprive people of their property. You were once slaves, now you're brought out free. I'm giving you this land. There is enough room for everyone. So when people are doing this, they're stealing the land from those that God has given it to for their own selfish gain and uh, material sense of acquisition. So the Lord Almighty has declared, verse 9, Surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. Words, if you want to squeeze everyone else out, you'll be squeezed out by me, God says. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. Now, a bath of wine sounds pretty big. It's not like a bathtub of wine. Uh, it's an ancient measurement. And so what you're being told here is, look, there's a ten-acre field. Ten acres. That's a fair size. And from that, you're going to get, out of all of your 10-acre vineyard, you're going to get a jug of wine. That's not a good yield. That's really, really small. And then when you look at you know, uh, a homer of seaweed and ephah of grain, your harvest actually weighs less than the seed that you planted. So your, your yields are minuscule. And what God is saying is, listen, if you just want to go out and selfishly acquire things, disregarding the needs of everyone else, then I have a way of reducing your yield. I have a way of reducing your, uh, your money and luxury. I can drive you out too, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. Woe to you who do this. Because as you disregard the poor, I will start to disregard you. As you deprive others, I will start to deprive you. You, are, you, you exercise your power, I, I'm pretty powerful too. I'll treat you the way that you are treating others. Now it is also worth saying, of course, this is slightly different today, but in an agrarian sort of society, when people are deprived of land, they're deprived of livelihood. I mean, the majority of people, even those who work you know, as, as a carpenter or, or whatnot, everyone would have been dependent on what their own property could grow just to have any sort of sustenance whatsoever. This is the case around the world today. You know, there are an enormous number of people who, who they work at a factory, but if they didn't have their own piece of property where they were growing you know, simple crops and fruits and vegetables or, or, if they're, or raising a few chickens or, or a goat or whatnot, they'd starve to death. And so in ancient Israel, this is not just a matter of, uh, you don't have the, the benefit of home ownership. This is, these people are taking away, when they take away land, they take away livelihood. There, there's no other recourse. Woe to those. The second group, we can say, you know, the, first, the first is woe to the greedy. This is woe to the hedonists, those who just live for pleasure. 
Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. It will descend into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled, but the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. These are people who all they care about is their own pleasure, but they don't care at all about God. They're, they're running around you know, from the moment they get up, you know, chasing their, their alcoholic beverages, and they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord of the work, and they don't respect the work of his hands. So these are people given over to their banquets, their feasting, their music, their pleasure. They're just living for now. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter what God thinks. Now's what matters. Our pleasure is the only thing that counts. These people just want to live in pleasure and feasting. And God says, listen, if you're going to live that way, if you're going to disregard my ways, if you're going to reject me, there are other feasts too. In fact, Death will expand its jaws. Death will open wide its mouth. The same way that you, you pour into your body all these luxuries and alcohol, you will be poured into death itself, swallowed down. If you want to live for your own pleasure and disregard me, God says, the end result is death. That's where you're headed. My people will go into exile. Those who were feasting, those of high rank who could afford to throw lavish dinner parties, will die of hunger. Because again, these things are all tied together. The people who are able to afford these sorts of this sort of uh, gratuitous self-indulgence in luxury are the same people who are pushing the poor out of the land. It's the only reason they can afford this it is because they're removing the poor. They're taking what belongs to the poor for themselves. They have an abundance. They have far more than they need. And the poor don't have enough. And so they're able to have all of this luxurious indulgence, all of this feasting, because they're disregarding God and other people are starving. And God says, well, listen, if you're going to cause everyone else to starve, you know, in reciprocity, you'll starve too one day. You want to feast at the expense of the death of others? Then death itself will feast on you. It's been said sometimes, worth thinking about. This is just off to the side. This is not directly applicable from this text. I want to be careful with this. But it has been said, rightly, Basically, today, two-thirds of the world will be trying to find enough to eat. 
and one-third of the world will be trying to find the right diet. In other words, there is massive overconsumption with a few, and there is malnourishment for many. And one would think that it would be possible to solve both of those issues, actually, uh, if you were just to think about it a little bit. Woe to those who overindulge and overconsume at the expense of the poor. They will be brought low, everyone humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. Now, chapters 2 through 4, especially chapter 2, give you that message again and again and again. Look, be careful. If you exalt yourself, God will lower you. He alone will be exalted on that day. The Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice. The Holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. So God's looking for justice, and he's not seeing, he's seeing bloodshed. He's looking for righteousness, he's hearing cries of distress. So God will act in such a way that he will bring about righteousness. He will act in such a way that he will bring about justice. The third woe. Woe to those, verse 18, who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so we may know it. This is a woe pronounced and those who mock God. Woe to the mockers. Woe to the scoffers. Second Peter uh, deals with this theme at, at length, as does Jude. But woe to those who mock God. Woe to those who say, you know, I, if God's going to judge me, you know, let's see it. You know, in fact, it's, it's ironic today uh, with, with so, certain um, social media stars and, and you know, singers and, and athletes, there, there, there seems to be a, sort of this trend a little bit. You know, I know all about trends on social media. Like, of all that stuff Rick was talking about, like, the stuff he was talking about, I, I'm all over that stuff. And that's just another way of saying you can get a CD from the office, right, like, to listen to. That's, that's how that works. Because like, we're, just, we're just like, hashtag, living my best life. You know, like, that's, just, that's just how it goes. Uh, you, you, you sort of you look at this, and a lot of people today, they're, they're, there's sort of this idea that you keep floating around out there. There's tattoos like this and all kinds of stuff. Only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. No one else can judge me. Only God can judge me. Someone a little while ago sort of noted, there may just come a horrible moment in someone's life when they realize only God can judge them. Like, it seems like that's the sort of thing that said, just to say, like, don't judge me. Who are you? Only God can judge me. Go, yeah, you should be worried about that. Like, yes, God can judge you. Only God can judge you. And he will. He's the judge. Think about that. Don't use it as an excuse to sort of get away with whatever you want. God can and will be your judge one day. Only God can judge you and he will. Stop mocking. Let God hurry. If he's going to judge me, if, if he's going to judge me, he would have done it by now. I'm doing this fine. What are those who are so tied to their sin that they're pulling it along behind them? It's a burden to them because they won't let it go. Where is the Lord? Where is God? They'll find out soon enough. 
The fourth woe, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I didn't know what to call this, so I just, I just called it woe to the inverters. <laughs> those who are inverting right and wrong. Uh, you're in an awful lot of trouble if you can't differentiate light from darkness. You're, you're in an awful lot of trouble if you think things that are morally good are actually morally evil. And things that are morally evil are actually morally good. And yet, if you look at our society, isn't it the case that there are things which the Bible clearly says are morally wrong, which are celebrated as morally good? And, and, and there are things that, that, as Christians, if you take a stand for something, you, if, if you're allowed a voice in the marketplace of ideas, at all, you just sort of shut it down. Not because people can can refute the idea or the argumentation. They don't listen to the idea of the argumentation. It's just, as soon as you voice a countercultural perspective, it's, you're a bigot. Well, calling someone a bigot's not an argument. It doesn't refute the idea. It just shouts them down. It, it, it just castigates the individual's character. So you can't even speak a word because what you say is good, the world says is evil. And what God says is evil, the world says is good. You, you, what, can, what can you do when you live in a society like that? There's no hope for it because all of the metrics of evaluation are completely wrong. So that when you take what's evil in the sight of God and you categorize that as good, you take what's good in the sight of God and categorize it as evil, and then you have to evaluate certain moral, uh, moral questions. Well, you can't possibly get it right because your standard is diametrically opposed to the standard of God. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. There's just no hope at that point. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to the arrogant. Uh, chapter 2, again, deals with this at great length. Only God will be exalted. All other people who are proud and arrogant will be brought low. We could phrase this a different way, slightly. Woe to those who don't have any type of humility. Woe to those who, who aren't humble. Woe to those who aren't meek. And then lastly, this is sort of a general, woe to those who are corrupt, verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. So these are people, again, so that they're drinking is that these are leaders, they're judges who are drinking and getting drunk, then accepting bribes to enrich themselves, depriving the innocent of justice. That is, they don't care at all whether someone is guilty or innocent. They just care who gives them the most money, and, and, and they want to get their money. They want to spend it on their own pleasure, on, on drink and all sorts of things. So rather than being a judge with sober judgment, there are people who flout all of their responsibilities. They, they care more about their own intoxication than they do about justice. And in order to, to keep themselves sort of in a financial position where they can continue to feast and indulge, drink to excess, they'll, they'll condemn the innocent as long as they get money. They'll let the guilty go free as long as they get paid. They don't care at all about justice. This brings you back to the original problem. I looked for justice and saw bloodshed. I looked for righteousness and heard cries of distress. How distressing is it? 
to be the victim of exploitation and criminal activity, and your only recourse is to the ones who are corrupt themselves, who are propping up the system. This is one of the tremendous problems in history, and also one of the tremendous problems around the world today. I mean, you, you, you think the horror of uh, Kristallnacht, the, the night of shattered glass, when before the outbreak of World War II, uh, organized Nazi sympathizers ran through towns, shattering all the windows of, of businesses that belonged to Jewish people, shattering the windows of homes of Jewish people. And the, people, and, and the Jewish people came out, crystal knocked, and you go to the police, and the police beat you up. Where do you go? Where do you go when the police are the ones who are enforcing injustice? Where do you go when the judge will look at your rich neighbor who's just stolen your land, who's deprived you of your wages, who's pushed you out because he's got, he's got some thugs in his employ. And now you're pushed out of the land and your only redress is the court where the judge rules on behalf of God. And you go there and you have the law and, and, and you're right and the judge knows you're right and, and the defendant knows he's right and basically says, well, Your Honor, can I, can I talk to you for a moment? And, and the money changes hands, and the judge gets up and says, I find no guilt. This is all done properly. Cries of distress. Where will I live? How will we eat? Because the bloodshed isn't just murder. The bloodshed is depriving people of their livelihood so that they die. Oh, God, help. And God says, I'm looking at my vineyard. What more can I have done for you? And this is what we get. Therefore, because of all of this, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake. The dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. They, their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. And that day... They will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, there is only darkness and distress. Even the sun will be darkened by clouds. You have a society like this, God says. And all I can do is destroy it. 
it's already, chapters 2 through 4, experiencing absolute internal disintegration. We saw that. Here at the end of chapter 5, verses 26 to 30, God says, you know what? Not only is a society going to disintegrate internally, I'm bringing in people from the outside. I'm going to let the army come in. There are always nations that are happy to invade other nations. I'm going to remove my protection because I'm protecting this nation and all they're doing is, is perpetuating bloodshed internally. And it's the innocent who are dying. So I'm going to remove my hand of protection and let this other nation come in and the guilty will die too. If they don't want me, if they don't want my blessing, then they can simply uh, sort of reap what they've sown. There will be a harvest. It's not a harvest of good grapes like I should have expected. It's, it's a harvest of bloodshed. So these people who are guilty of bloodshed and corruption will die too. This, this depiction of this army coming is horrifying. No one gets tired. No one slumbers or sleeps. One of the great lines in uh, Zulu, Rourke's Drift, is when uh, the Zulu nation is coming towards the, the small contingent of British soldiers. And, and the, some of the Brits are sort of talking about how they can... Uh, you know, they'll win this battle, or, or you know, they're, they're British, they have their guns and whatnot. And someone who, who knows the Zulu culture says, a Zulu can run, run 50 miles in a day and fight a battle at the end of it. This army is coming, not one of them is growing tired. They're, they're, they're running across the plates, not one of them is even tripping. All of their equipment is in perfect shape. Before, uh, in, in a culture where you didn't shoe horses, you didn't put horseshoes on, one of the most valuable parts of a horse actually was, was the quality of its hoof. Oh, these hooves are like flint. They don't break. They can go over rock. And that, that cavalry horse that pulls the chariot, it's going to be fresh for battle and ready, not foot sore and limping. They're like lions. They're going to pounce on the people and they're going to drag them off and there'll be no one to rescue them. It's going to be so bad. The darkness is going to be so stark that the sun itself isn't going to shine when this takes place. Woe indeed. To the vineyard of the Lord, when he has poured this much into its care, when it has produced this type of fruit, and then this is the, what it looks like when the vineyard is torn down. Now, that particular song, vision, ends on a relatively distressing note. But, I can't help that. I didn't give the vision. Don't shoot the messenger. This image, though, is picked up very famously in an extraordinarily important place in the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 21. 
Because one of the things that's important to see about Isaiah is that Isaiah actually provides, in many ways, the, the framework, the, the Old Testament framework in which the ministry of Jesus is understood more than any other Old Testament book. You could argue that, obviously, the law is very important, the book of Psalms is very important, but Isaiah provides a, a, a lens through which to understand the entire ministry of Jesus. So Matthew 21, 33. Now this should sound familiar to you. The, the original hearers of Jesus would have got this. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. You read that, and you immediately, that's Isaiah 5. There, there's no other Old Testament allusion. This is Isaiah 5. So you're supposed to bear the Isaiah 5 context in mind. Now, I will say this, and I don't mean this to be unkind, I'm just say it. If you ever read this parable, and, and you haven't known that it's Isaiah 5, you really ought to read Isaiah. Uh, because the whole thought world of this parable is the fulfillment of Isaiah 5. They, but then Jesus adds some details to it. So he's building on Isaiah 5, actually. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit, the expectation that there will be a harvest. The tenants seized his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now, the extra details, of course, actually mark the whole thing off as utterly absurd. As if you're going to have these tenants and the owner is going to send his servants to collect the money and they're going to beat the guy up. Then they're going to kill another guy. You go, no, they're not. Then you're going to send your son. And you're going to send your son and they're going to say, let's kill him, we'll get the inheritance. You're obviously not in the will if you kill the guy's son. Okay, so you're not getting the inheritance by doing this. That's not going to happen. This is massively exaggerated. This is not at all realistic of the human experience. Except, it is exactly what happened. Because Isaiah 5 is given by Isaiah. And what's going to happen to Isaiah? Is his message going to be received? Do you get to Isaiah 6 and Isaiah's messages? Oh, by the way, thanks for listening. No more messages for you. Not quite. He, he's rejected. In fact, historically, um, now this is, this is maybe unfounded, uh, but historically, uh, the tradition was that Isaiah died fleeing from the king. He, he hid in a hollow uh, tree, and the king's uh, soldiers sawed the tree down with him inside, cutting him in half, which is why in Hebrews 13, it talks about those who are sawn in two. That, that is tradition in terms of Isaiah. But if you just read the prophets, they were subject to an enormous amount of persecution. Some put to death. Others beaten up. Others thrown in jail. 
these are the servants of God. It is exactly what Israel did. And in the terms of the metaphor, it's ridiculous. No one would ever act that way. But in terms of the point of contact of the analogy, that is, when you look at the concrete situation that this is a metaphor of, it's so appalling in the metaphor, you almost think it's unrealistic, but it's exactly what's happening. And then the people fully expect, when, when, when Jesus shows up, let's kill him, let's get rid of him. Caiaphas the high priest says this, it's better for one man to perish than for the Romans to come and take away our place in our nation. In other words, if we don't want to lose the vineyard, kill the son. Kill Jesus, then we'll keep the vineyard. That's exactly what Caiaphas says. But just like in Isaiah 5, they pronounce judgment on himself. What would the vineyard owner do? Oh, he'd put those wretches to a wretched end. He'd, he'd kill them. They need, but he'd still want his harvest. He'd kill them, but, but he wouldn't give up on the vineyard. He'd give it to other people who would produce its fruit. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, incidentally fulfilling the parable. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So Jesus here adds Psalm 118 to Isaiah 5. Haven't you heard? God is building his kingdom around a cornerstone, precious and valuable to him. The builders who are trying to build it reject it, but God's still going to use it. And so you, you reject God's cornerstone, and he he's, doesn't mean he's not going to use the cornerstone, he's going to reject you as a builder. Uh, you don't labor in the vineyard, it doesn't mean that God's going to get rid of the vineyard, he's going to get rid of you as a worker. You kill his son, he's not going to give it to you as an inheritance, he's going to get rid of you. No matter what your position is, you, you fall on this stone, you'll be broken to pieces. If it falls on you, you'll be crushed. Uh, the rabbis had an interesting expression. Think about this every once in a while. An interesting expression. That if you throw a stone at a pot, woe to the pot. And if you throw the pot against the stone, woe to the pot. <laughs> now, it doesn't matter which, which way it's going. The pot's going to break, not the stone. It doesn't matter if this... If if the cornerstone falls on you, it doesn't matter if you fall on it. The cornerstone's not being broken. You are. God has established his son. I will build everything around my son. You reject the son and you'll be broken. But, and here out of all of this darkness, Isaiah 5 ends with, with metaphorical, literal darkness. If you could, you could mix a metaphor that badly. The sun's hidden behind the clouds and there's no light. It's all dark. Jesus uses this parable to say something even worse. The sun himself is going to be killed. That's even worse than Isaiah 5. And when he dies, of course, the sun will be hidden and will be dark. But there's still a ray of light and hope here. The vineyard will be taken away from you. It will be given to a people who will produce its fruit. 
Why? Because God's plan is built around Jesus and nothing is going to derail that. Nothing is going to stop God from having a fruitful people in a fruitful land. Nothing is going to stop God from having people who produce this fruit. And Isaiah 5 gives you the negative. Isaiah 5 gives you, this is what God doesn't want. This is the injustice God isn't looking for. This is the thing that appalls God. Whoa, 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 whoa. Paul in Galatians 5 will give you the fruit that God is looking for. Love and joy. Peace and patience. Goodness, faithfulness. Long-suffering. You, you, you look at these things... You self-control against such things there is no law. You look at these things and you say, that's the fruit God wants. God's going to have that. God's going to cultivate that. God's going to make that harvest possible. Isaiah 5 ends with, with doom and gloom. Matthew 21 ends with even worse sin. The, mur- the, the intended murder of the Son of God incarnate. But hope. There will be fruit. There will be light because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he's rejected to death, he rises again and lives, and the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit produces the harvest of righteousness that God wants in our lives. So the question then is really, where are you in this place? Are you in Isaiah 5, cultivating injustice? Are you one of those who is trying to to reject the cornerstone? Or are you someone who in God's grace knows the Lord? You see evidence in your life that God is at work. The harvest may seem small some days, but it's there and it's real. God's making you fruitful. Continue to cultivate in you. Well, may God help us. May God help us to be a fruitful people. May God help us to be a vineyard as a church. When he looks, he sees fruit that's pleasing to him. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.